0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Astrid Williamson of the band Goya Dress. Really enjoyed this interview. Astrid goes into great detail about her formative years, her musical influences and the songwriting process for her. We talk about Goya Dress and all her solo albums that she's been producing. She has a new album coming out next year and a single coming out in a couple of weeks. And we talk a bit about that. And there's also some live dates coming as well. As per usual, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways that you can support this podcast, but I'll stop waffling and hand over to Astrid. Welcome to the podcast, Astrid. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here.
0: Whereabouts in the country? Are you?
1: Well, this second, I'm actually up in um, Derbyshire. My mum is up here up here and during the pandemic we've um it's been hard because she's in a a care home so i've been trying to have as much access i was actually involved in quite a lot of campaigning to do with access and so forth during the pandemic um because that's still very difficult Mm. that aspect of the of the situation is not ideal so i've been spending as much time up here as i can really i'm actually based in brighton most of the time, I've been in Brighton a long time. And so I still, I still live there too. So it's kind of, obviously the music business has been completely put on hold. So it's not such a, it's not so drastic to be going between two places because um, all my other work has been, keeps getting bumped (laughs) to next year. (laughs) So um, I feel it's actually one of the blessings is that I have a lot of time to be with her.
0: Have you found that, Uh, stifling of your kind of you know, your day to day business has it been difficult for you to deal with, or have you just sort of been rolling with it?
1: Honestly, it's not been that different for me. I'm quite a I've never been much of a out and about crazy party animal, I've always been in you know, very often writing or working on music. It's just one of those slightly hibernatory creatures a lot of the time. I mean, I like a party with the best of them it's just I didn't find lockdown that different to not I mean obviously when I'm on tour it's very different but mm. I didn't find it that different to be perfectly truthful
0: when did it all start for you Astrid in terms of just getting into music and becoming a songwriter
1: well music itself was really um quite my mother uh, in her working life was a piano teacher and she studied singing and piano um and that was her career as a teacher and my dad was a self-taught is a self-taught um banjo player and guitarist and he can pretty much pick up any instrument and play it completely um self-taught so i had really two quite strong strains and they played a lot together when we were little kids of parties and My mum, who has a beautiful voice, she would sing songs like Plaisir d'Amour and, you know, um, be quite, quite sophisticated, actually. And my dad would accompany her and they would sing together. And it it was wonderful, really, for me. I remember my dad had a banjo case that was fur lined with a spectacular orange fur. And I really quite literally wanted to live inside his banjo case (laughs) because... I loved the way it felt so much. I was very little because I could fit in this banjo case. Um, so there was certainly no taboo about being a musician or wanting to be a musician. I mean, they both wanted me to do something a bit more sensible, I think. I don't think they loved the idea that I was going to go off and do music, but I did go and get a degree. You know, I went to the academy and my mum went there, so I kind of followed in her footsteps. So music is a background and as a backdrop, it was always there. There was lots of music in the house. Um, singing was encouraged, we were kind of shoved on the stage and my sister completely rebelled and said I'm not going to be anybody's performing monkey. But I loved it and I I kind of took to it and never had any doubts about the fact that music seemed to be important. And also the Shetland Folk Festival was started by my stepfather and a few other people in Shetland. I think 1980 was the very first Shetland Folk Festival and we were, because my stepfather who actually came from Liverpool, he was a real kind of Beatles fan and, and the folk music fan, but he was part of that generation of Liverpudlians that came up with the Beatles and was m- massively impacted by music. And we were the kind of opening act, because my mum sang, my, my parents were divorced by then, and she was with my stepfather at that point. And we were in a band and we opened the very first Shetland Folk Festival. <laughs> and I remember going to school, I would have been in secondary two in that, um, in 1980, like second okay. year of high school. And I remember going to my teacher, my gym teacher and said, I simply can't do basketball today because I'm performing tonight. So, <laughs> I'm exempting myself. I didn't even I didn't even feel the need to have a conversation. I was like, I'm I'm a professional a professional <laughs> musician this evening and nobody's going to make me go and do <laughs> go and do PE today. <laughs> and I but- felt completely entitled to this was my job now. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah and i the... think
1: that might have been pivotal for the whole job description thing about working at night and yeah so that was basically kind of music is a is a viable journey a, a road to travel down maybe and then um i did go to music college and i was doing piano and composition as my first studies and second studies and then i got into a relationship in my second year and my boyfriend was in a rock band he was a wonderful guitarist and mm. he was doing the whole getting a deal thing and lots of record companies everywhere and there was a great big buzz around his band and it never actually amounted to the career that i certainly felt he deserved he'd already been doing guitarist for the british Consulate lot as a solo guitarist doing classical sort of his own compositions but anyway this is rock music and I suddenly saw I mean it just was a real eye-opener I thought my god this is fantastic it's really exciting and I wrote Katie stood in the bench just one night just you know kind of arrived fairly fully formed and and that was that really and I just I thought wow this is what I want to do now I've been doing a tremendous amount of practice and because I was doing piano and I was playing like four hours practice a day and Bach and Beethoven, Mozart and everything. And I did love that, but I never had the hands for Liszt or Rachmaninoff, really. My hands weren't big enough. And I didn't also, I just didn't have the technique. I was never going to make it. Is a is a classical uh, certainly not certainly not is a solo pianist but even i think it is a pianist generally i don't think i had the love for the for the repertoire really so when i discovered songwriting and i realized that it sort of came i mean katie stood benches was on the debut rooms um goydress's debut rooms and you know i, I didn't i didn't really go through a, a lot of trying to write songs i just wrote a song and that was really how it arrived in my experience i didn't and i didn't think about it after that i thought definitely want to do this
0: <laughs> do, you... also,
1: it felt quite easy
0: <laughs> well that's that's i mean it's rare isn't it sometimes to sort of have that the confidence or the songs to come as fully as fully formed as they do but did you find yourself writing more on guitar or piano or what was the instrument of of kind of choice for that
1: well um actually even though katie sit the benches was written on the piano i borrowed a guitar i think i don't know i yeah i think anton gave me a guitar or i borrowed a guitar for a while and i i borrowed an amp when i moved to london eventually but initially i had uh, electric guitar and I wrote all the early Goya dress songs prior to actually moving to London. I had a, a, a raft of songs. That I kind of I was kind of I kept them to myself really. I didn't want anybody else to initially I was playing um with Antoine but I think I was quite possessive of these early songs hmm. Strange Death and Valentina and all the songs that came out on the dress EPS I sort of, they were all, a lot of them were written on guitars. Because um, what I found is because my I was so rubbish at guitar. I mean, I wasn't terrible at guitar because my dad had taught me some chords so as I could accompany him on the banjo. So okay. I knew my way around about four or five chords, E minor, G, A minor, D, C. I could play all those chords because those were the chords that he needed for me to play.
0: <laughs> I didn't know there were any more chords than that. That's, that's well, all you need, surely. <laughs>
1: well, actually, I know there are more, but I don't know what they're called on guitar. Yeah, me, me neither. <laughs> I know I use more, but I haven't a clue what they are. Um, <laughs> no, my because because my facility on guitar was quite limited, it actually had a huge impact on what I was writing because, you, I mean, you you simply have to compare, if you compare a song like Katie's Student in the Benches, which has got a bunch of chords in it, loads of chords in it, because I'm able to do a lot more on the piano than I am on the guitar. I wouldn't know where to begin to play that song on the guitar. Mm. Um, in a song like maybe Valentina, which is all in E minor. They're very different harmonically because of that, because I just simply didn't have the the chops on the guitar to do something really complicated. But I like that and I you know, I don't mind that. I, 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 I never want it to be. Um, a solo lead guitarist ever mm. it was never my i did love i did love rock and roll and i loved a lot of heavy metal bands in shetland we were brought up on i don't know ac dc and led zeppelin and big heavy rock bands i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed especially led zeppelin i didn't it wasn't my ambition to do that that didn't matter to me being a being a songwriter was probably if i had ambition it was to be a really to be a really good songwriter
0: so you had this kind of um, these songs written, formed as, in some way. And it, so what, what made you take the next step to, to sort of get a band together?
1: Well, firstly, i had been in Glasgow. I studied in Glasgow at the RSAMD, which is, I think they call it the Royal Conservatoire now of Scotland, mm-hmm. um, and I was there. And after a couple of years working in bands and learning how to be in bands, actually, I learned everything I knew from working with Anton Kirkpatrick. And um, so I went to London, about two years into that, I went to London in 19, in March of 1993, and I had maybe, I had the name, because I wanted to call the band Goya Dress, because um, I used to be quite slippery about this. I would say it was a Spanish festival, because there is a, f- a festival that is called Goya something dress, May I, I don't know, there's, there is something that pertains to that, and it's quite plausible, but actually, Goya Dress is from the address that Floor Forsyth wore in the Foresight saga, which had been, I didn't have a TV when I was living. I was living in a gatehouse in Ayrshire with my boyfriend, because there was a place we could rehearse downstairs. It was a big gatehouse in this country estate that had been put up for auction because of the death duties. And um, we could rehearse there and there was no TV. And so I just listened to radio all the time. <laughs> and there was a serialization of John Goldsworthy's Foresight Saga on.
0: Uh, okay. I
1: fell in love with that. And this I just loved it, the romance of a dress that a woman would wear that reminded her lover of a Goya painting. And further after that, was called her Goya dress. And I just really liked it. I really liked the idea of it. And I don't know why I was so, I guess I thought maybe, especially in the early nineties, to be into turn-of-the-century English literature. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't the most glamorous and exciting thing. That I, I'm sure that's why I didn't own to it at the time. Oh, um, uh, me a faint heart, um, but that's where the name came from. So I had the name and I had, I don't know how many songs, probably about six, maybe six or seven, Valentina, Strange Death, um, Katie, which other songs have you? Glorious I wrote in London after. And I went to London and I I looked, I looked around for players. And I, I knew one person who lived in London who'd been at the academy, a guy called Mark Crooks, who's a clarinetist. And he, I rang one and said, oh, I'm trying to get a band together. Do you know anybody? He said, yes, I know the best drummer in London. I thought yes, that'll do. That'll do. Best drummer <laughs> in London. That's who I want. And a guy called, Simon Pearson. And Simon is just an amazing drummer, and uh, in my opinion, definitely the best drummer in London, um, mm. then and now. And um, and then I went. I had a couple of bass players, and one guy stayed for a little while. Like we did, we didn't do any gigs. We just did some rehearsals, and he was a friend of Simon's, and he was great. But he said, "Listen, I." got a job on a cruise or something but i know this girl called terry de castro and i just thought the minute i heard her name i thought that's the right person she's the right person (laughs) and she always talks about how (laughs) her flatmate came back and said oh there's this girl who's rung twice and she's Damn it, she's absolutely desperate to talk to you, <laughs> <laughs> she's, she won't stop ringing and it was the funniest thing because I just it was like I was really intuitively yes that's the right person, she's a bass player and she's a girl, even better. I guess I arrived in London in 1993 about March and I think by the end of the summer I found Terry and Simon, Simon first and then Terry and I think we were really, I think we were rehearsing by the end of the year. Hmm. I think that round about the end of the year, we would got together and we'd started, we used to work at the premises all the time down in um, Hackney Road. Was it Hackney Road, the premises? Anyway. Yeah. So it was very, it was just, it was so exciting and fun. It was a lovely time.
0: When did you sort of start to sort of, sort of do live performances with this lineup? And, and, uh, and did you have like a, a plan? Of of kind of what what you wanted to do and where take where to take this Goya dress.
1: Well, the funny thing is, those two years I spent kind of learning how to be in rock bands with Anton, I'd also been because I didn't I didn't write for that band. I, I was writing songs, but they were kind of being. I wanted to keep them. I had this. I did, It's not like I had a grand plan. I just they just felt very precious to me. You know, mm. I felt like I had to protect them until I felt they were ready for the to be taken out. I really did and but because I had a lot of energy basically I was kind of managing things a little bit like I was I was the one that was organized enough to get demo tapes and biogs and photos and write because back in the day you did everything you know by the post yeah you know envelopes after envelope and I knew a lot of people before I came to London I'd knocked on a lot of doors to try and you know just get contacts and talk to people. And so I sort of, I didn't know people per se, I didn't have friends, but I didn't know who to send stuff to. I knew that who to send stuff at 4AD or at various, various record companies. I'd had enough um, contact with sending out demo tapes, you know, before then for Anton to sort of, know how to do it Mm. so i knew that i had to get a demo tape together and we i had a little four track recorder and me and terry and simon we would go into a rehearsal space and we'd record the drums and maybe the bass and that would be two tracks and then i'd bounce them down to one and then bounce over maybe the guitar and then bounce that into the third track. It was all bounce, 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 bounce. <laughs> yeah. So I had a I had a really scrappy demo tape with King Thong, um, Strange Death, Katie, and I think I, I can't remember, Valentina maybe. Um, and and we made a de- we made those demo tapes in just rehearsal studios. But I knew that if it was good enough, and just a reasonable, just a little bit of a biog and i think we had a a friend of ours took a photograph i think i i did know what to do actually and i think i did it all in one moment as well i waited and so that everybody got it at the same time so we really our first show was at the samuel beckett down stoke newington and i think there's a tremendous amount of record company interest for that we did six shows before we only did six shows before we got signed okay wow yeah so and it happened within about six weeks so well, not six weeks, but I think we'd said yes after about two months and six shows. And it, it was just incredibly fast. We were on tour with Suede in October of the same year. We did our first gig in May. So our, our trajectory was incredibly fast. Me and Terry would run around saying, Who's life? Who's life? <laughs> <laughs> and we call it a taxi life because things got so mad that we had to take taxis. And we said, "Oh, we were in our taxi life now."
0: And with with nude then, because I mean that there the label you you signed with was there any real kind of reason for that, or were they just the best fit? Do you think for you?
1: There was a lot of talk. I think that there was a, there was a real sense that the majors that wanted to sign. I think Epic was one of the majors. Certainly a bigger Sony, it was still a Sony label, but it was independent. Mm. I think it was a lot to do with management as well, saying that they felt that an independent would be more likely to give us developmental time.
0: Mm.
1: But perhaps that was, that was, and also it was, it was a good deal. It was enough money that we, I believe that quite quickly, although we all had jobs, and I did keep a lot, I had, I had an interesting job. I played the piano at the Groucho Club, and I enjoyed my job. Uh-huh. So I didn't give up until I absolutely couldn't tour and do my job, because so I kind of enjoyed playing the piano for 11. We all had jobs, but the, the deal did enable us to give ourselves a little bit of wages, which was quite luxurious, I think. Certainly, compared with day it is. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think there was a lot of reasons. It felt like the right fit.
0: How were the conversations about, you know, getting the album down and getting a producer in? And because you had John Cow from the Velvet Underground uh, mm-hmm. do do that. That whole process of picking a producer, how does that manifest itself? when how do you get the opportunity to, to sort of work with these people?
1: How did John Cale come on? That's a really good question. This is really <laughs> I do remember what you said, though. And he said, um, as long as I get to do Glorious. Ah. That, because Glorious was on the, the demo that he got. Do you know something? I actually don't know how, who, it uh, might have been Sarah. Sarah Withers was one of the managers. There was two managers. Nick Moore, who ran the Splash Club down at Water Rats, And Sarah Withers. And she had been involved with Shade. I know Glorious was very important, but I can't quite remember who, what part of the connection was that got him involved or where he'd heard it from. But he definitely was, very, he was you know, very decided about that. I think there was real desire on both sides for it to move forward.
0: What was he like to work with, and what was that sort of recording process for that album like?
1: Well, we were up at Battery in Kilburn, and um, we had a six-week, Session, I think for all of it, I think recording and mixing in six weeks. Okay. I feel like it was because I feel like that would be plenty of time to make a record. The turning point for me, because I was a perfectionist and a control freak. Okay. Really, I mean, I'm I'm still quite bad, but I was particularly bad when I was younger, and um, it was very hard for me to let go. And I was writing all the string parts and the instrumentation for most of it. And I was really, really controlling about it. And I really needed it to to be a certain way. And we had, um, John would go a bit too fast for me. I'd kind of be trying to slow him down. I I just felt, I kept feeling slipping out of my control. And we would fight about a few things, but one day the Brodsky Quartet came in. Now this is not, they're not credited because it was, I think it was a cash job. I probably shouldn't even say it. (laughs) <laughs> but on Sitting the benches, it was the Brodsky quartet that came in and did the arrangement. Um, they came in and played the arrangement that I'd written. And I'd written this um, arrangement for a quartet. And actually, it was handwritten on score, because none of the Sibelius and all these technologies didn't exist then, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was handwritten scores that I'd done for the musicians. And the only person that could run that session was me. And so i had to take charge of the whole session with the strings and everything and, and after that john slowed down from he would pay he would be a bit more he wasn't quite so i mean he wasn't like he definitely wasn't a bully but he was very strong and yeah. um in the sense that you didn't really want to go up against them and I remember once i didn't actually like the vocal on katie stood in the benches very much and me and martin brass came in early i said martin I want, try, I want to try and redo the, vo- and it, it wasn't done to a click. It was never going to happen. I so I really want to try and do this vocal again. I don't like it. And so we sneaked in early and John came in and he caught me. <laughs> I remember seeing him through the glass and thought, Oh God. I- oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but he just sort of threw his arms wide and he always said, Oh, you remind me of Nico and all this stuff. It's quite flattering. And he said, Oh Astrid, you wouldn't be you if you didn't do these things. It was great in so many ways. But I mean, a a lot of it was, um, I did feel that there was a few things that I wanted a certain way and he literally just did what he wanted. And that was okay, because there's a a vocal, there's a little bit of a backing vocal on one of the tracks that I was determined to have it my way. And in the end, he just split the, the, it was all done on tape and he just moved the vocal, but it is actually better. So he made a good decision. But great, you know, it was very exciting
0: what was it like taking the album and the eps and you know all that material out on the road and touring did you did you enjoy well, did, that process
1: honestly when i one of the reasons i had to stop playing the electric guitar was just i found that the volume just i just kind of i just wasn't i'm just not made for it, it it's just too really loud electric guitar and i remember doing all the guitars and things like for Scorch and stuff, which is, you're in a room with two massive amps and it's really, really loud. And there was a part of me that said, I felt, it's not that you feel like a fraud. Well, I did feel like a fraud as a guitarist, because I'm really not a guitarist in that respect, I think. And I found it just overwhelmingly hard to deal with all that volume all the time. It's like, you know, a real guitarist is born to that. They love it. They live and breathe it, and it's the mm. way they do it. We did a lot of overdubs, so it's quite hard to recreate it, well, and the fact that, you know, not being a brilliant guitarist, it was hard. And Anton Kirkpatrick came in to help and do, but it kind of changed it a lot. I loved him. He's amazing, amazing guitarist, brilliant guitarist. But it changed it again and made it a bit more rocky. And there's a kind of a, there's just sort of a quality to the early stuff where I was the only guitarist playing. I mean, Anton only played live, but to recreate what I'd done in the studio I needed help live. So I thought it was I found it a struggle trying to do I was always worried about that. Yeah. I was always worried about getting the live experience to be as as good as the music that was created in the studio. It was always a I was always very conflicted about it to be honest.
0: Goydress is such a small part of, of, of a, a, such a, a large and expansive kind of musical career um, but it obviously has it paved the way for you in a, in a way I'm guessing but after you kind of called it a day with with Dress or decided to sort of end that project you, you've gone from strength to strength with these with these solo recordings and uh, solo albums and I wanted to ask you how that felt to make that transition from obviously working with band, a band, a, a trio or a, a threesome, and then going into something that was quite insular, maybe. And, and uh, did you find that quite a difficult transition?
1: I think it's a huge regret of my life that I wasn't strong enough because Boy, F- you know, the album Boyfriend really should have been a Goya dress record, and Goya dress were in New Orleans. Terry and all those songs were being rehearsed for a dress record and it was just the label, lots of things and I really would not like to lay the blame anywhere except at my own feet, it's my band, my choice. Mm-hmm. Because of, probably a little bit because of Britpop, we were so musically out of step with that and so the record company kind of felt that because of, You know, I was the writer. Perhaps if I went solo, blah, 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 we'd still all go to New Orleans. We'd still all be a band. We could all keep our jobs. Mm. Nothing would change except the name. And then, you know what, I should have just been stronger. I blame myself. The fact that Boy For You didn't really, it was, it's a really, I think it's a really good album. And the songs were very strong on that record. But it's really true, you know, I think that what you hear on those early EPs I really didn't give a damn about anybody else's opinion. I think I got quite affected by this oh you've got to have a hit oh, brick pop or you know, you write you've got to write you got to do something else, you know, and I should have yeah, ju- yeah. I think I should have just stuck to my guns and kept writing about blood and death and sex and you know, all this all these <laughs> yeah. subjects like, you know, King <laughs> Thong and I don't know, I don't know, Scorch, you know ruby ruby it's all dark 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 material um but that's not true either you know absolutely i I did stop writing about those dark dark things and that's that's not the worst thing to happen either
0: you've you've released six solo albums
1: yeah how many is it yes you're right six is it six
0: yeah i hope so (laughs) i
1: I get confused sometimes because i always think because i always i always think of rooms is my first album but of course Uh... it's not a solo album but yes and of course the Requiem is a classical album, so um that doesn't count in the same way either. But yes, I think you're right. Boy, for you I think it is six. And
0: I-, I wanted to ask you kind of how do you think your, your writings evolved over that sort of landscape of-, of music?
1: Well, when I talk to you about the subject matter, um when I think about how I wrote at the beginning, it was all in the third person and you know, we used to have a running joke where we'd say, who is she anyway? Me and Terry would laugh about this. She, what does she does this and she does that, yeah. volunteering. Yeah. Um, and I was really conscious not to, I mean, oftentimes I really wasn't singing about myself, but um, I was quite conscious about that whole thing. And then I went through a, a long phase of, I think it's that sublimation of your own. I mean, I do think some the confessional variety of songwriting can be quite a healing kind of modality. I think it's, I think that's what it does. I think it draws out, I certainly didn't think a song was was worth much of it, it didn't make me feel quite intensely. And with that usually, you know, I, I, it sounds a bit odd, but um, slightly ecstatic. You know, the tears weren't tears of sadness. They were kind of this ecstatic feeling. And if I didn't have that, I thought, this song's no good, this song's no good. And so I went to a long face of that, you know. Um, and then I, We Go To Dream is the last solo album I did. There's a song on it called Scattered, which is just, for me, of all the love songs I've ever written, are songs about heartbreak and loss and grief. I just thought, I definitely don't want to write that song again. That's it for me. I'm not writing any more love songs. That's it. It's finished. Done. Don't need to do any more. And I just, you know, I think I'm the variety songwriter that uses it in order to exorcise something. Yeah. Now, I do write about other subject matter, like, you know, um, Boy for You, the track from this first solo album. It's all, I read The Collector by John Fowles, and it was just all about a kidnapper, really. It's nothing to do with me or my life. And it's just, you can do that. It's perfectly, you know, that's, I don't know, I think you can totally write stories um, still fairly dark though yeah but my journey the last album I just that will be released next February um, which is called into the mountain that was a completely different writing process and, and really really frightening for me because I'm so I'm so secure in in writing songs that you know are layered within the lyrics there has to be some kind of little bit of depth somewhere that some poetry or something to make it a bit more than just it's something banal you know
0: yeah and
1: i like that that's how i write so i enjoy um and you know i i don't do other you know satire or anything like that i just do what i do and that's what i enjoy so um i, I did do a completely different experimental the, the next album is quite experimental from a writing standpoint, which I'm slightly frightened about because I've never, normally I would craft a lot to make sure it stood up, you know, I had to, I had to sit and improvise with some text that I had found um, in a folder that was called into the mountain. And I had to come up with something. And once I would come up with something, I was going to hit record and I was going to not stray very far from it and see how true i could stay to that rather than falling back on how i normally have been writing songs for good grief probably 30 years so it's a bit it's, it's an experiment but you know what i'm, I'm entitled to an ex- experiment now
0: oh yeah i'm well, after six solo albums <laughs> yeah i think you've well earned it instead the new singles out uh, in in a couple of weeks um... yes
1: in, in gratitude In (laughs) gratitude, I know I didn't think of that when I. (laughs) Uh,
0: And and you're planning us some live dates as well in November.
1: Yes, I have um, London. The date in London is the 22nd at the Green Note of November, um, 24th at the Pier Hat in Manchester, and the 28th, which is actually my birthday, which is the day of the Lone Wolf. For those of you that do know anything about my solo records, there's one called The Day of the Lone Wolf. And um, I'll be in the Kitchen Garden in Birmingham that night. That's a Sunday night in November.
0: Are you taking a band with you or will this be solo?
1: I'm hoping to at least have... um, Martin Barker, who played drums on the album, he, he said he would definitely do the album launch. But I think we may well... The album's coming out on the 18th of February next year. And I think that we might do downstairs at the Green Note in November, but do upstairs in March or February, March. Um, and so the I might save the actual album. I might just save up all my um, musician credit for the album long. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I would really like, I mean, I, I've just, during lockdown, I I helped, uh, my little brother writes beautiful songs. so. I recorded and produced his album and he's going to be support for me. So I might rope him in to doing a bit of guitar playing for me. So I'll have him and maybe Richard Yale, who's played bass for me for years and years, is wonderful. And, and he's always up for it. So with a little luck, I might be able to do more than just the solo thing. But um, certainly for the launch next year, I would really hope to put the band to- some kind of band together to express the music, because as usual, I mean, right from the start, it was always fairly, it's fairly layered and, and for want of a better word, complex. You know, the, the strings often, and you know, various instrumentation, and so it's something that I, I've always wanted to have a band if I can, but, you know, it's just a, it's quite an ask these days, um, taking that out.
0: Well I say you know this podcast has been an absolute eye opener and in, in terms of your the music that you've been producing it's been great that the last month or so um since you've agreed to, to come on and do this would be just you know finding out about everything that you've been doing and listening to an awful lot of your stuff and it's yeah, it's huge and uh sublime is a word I'd use and I love some of the organic um sounding sort of a piano tracks that you do um, where you can hear the, the pedals moving and just it's yeah. um, there is it's just lovely stuff and uh, and uh thank you so much uh astrid for coming on it's been brilliant
1: oh well thank you it's no no it's a real pleasure and um i've been enjoying i've been listening to loads of the, the people you've been talking to it's great so it's really it's really it's lovely to remember those days as well so a, a fun time
0: thanks astrid
1: all right chris thank you
0: So that was Astrid talking about Goya Dress and all her solo material and writing process. And really looking forward to hearing the new album next year and hopefully getting to see Astrid play live. If you haven't heard any of her solo material, I've put a link to her website in the show notes. Please do check it out, it's absolutely sublime. So just some reminders of how you can support the podcast. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to support me financially, Uh, i've got a coffee donation link that's also in the show notes that really helps as well and lastly if you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast if you could do that that would be fantastic that's it for this week i'm pleased to say that i've got some more interviews lined up for the next few weeks so all being well i'll be back in your ears at some point next weekend have a great week see you soon